Indie Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center of Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indie Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our new podcast, Pizza Pod and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with the hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today, we will be spotlighting three phenomenal Notre Dame seniors in their thesis in a bonus episode of season one of Pizza, Pod, and Politics. Hello, everybody. I'm one of our hosts today. I'm Michael Morota. I'm a senior co-chair uh, living in Keenan Hall, majoring in political science and minoring in the Hesburgh Program of Public Service. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Subnani. I'm the other co-chair of ND Votes. I'm also a senior this year. I'm a science pre-professional studies major with minors in constitutional studies and science technology and values. I lived in Howard and now I live off campus and I'm super psyched to be here with you today. We would like to welcome former student body president Rachel Engel to present her thesis on mechanisms for political socialization to increase electoral ambition in adolescent girls from the Department of Political Science. Rachel is a senior political science major and business economics minor from Cincinnati, Ohio. She lived in Baden Hall, and now she is off campus. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you guys today. Also, I'm just very thankful for all the work that you guys do on campus and have been doing this past year just to mobilize students and, and be civically engaged. So I'm honored to, to be a part of this program today. Absolutely. We are so happy to partner with you all year and especially excited to hear about your thesis right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for the space and opportunity to talk about this. It's a topic very close to my heart and an endeavor that has definitely consumed a good amount of energy in recent years. So I'm excited to get to chat with you about it. To start, I will give you the name of my thesis, which is entitled Run Like a Girl, how gender and race work through the role model effect to increase the political ambition of adolescent girls. And additionally, I do have to add, I was lucky enough to be advised by the brilliant Christina Wolbrecht, who I know you've had before. Um, so I absolutely hit the jackpot on that realm and I could not have asked for a better advisor. So of course, need to make that note. But to back it up and give some context, I can sort of just give you a picture of why this topic is important to me and how I came to encounter it and interact with it in a number of settings. I have always been, I would say, very inexplicably drawn to politics, not really for a reason I could name, but for as long as I can remember, I, um, for as long as I could be conscious of like national news cycle, I remember being very drawn to it. I followed the 2008 election very closely, like tracking healthcare debates between primary candidates and uh, although certainly not understanding any of the nuances of policies or differentiation of platforms. Um, for some reason, I just politics has always been something I was very magnetized towards and um, seemed to have an early but very abstract understanding that it was something that was dynamic and should be regarded with a lot of weight. And now after having gone to further delve into political science itself, I see it as a tool for justice and think it should be viewed with the utmost importance. And taking AP government in high school was very formative for me because it was like 
the first academic experience that gave me a real spark and galvanized a lot of further curiosity on it. And additionally, I was uncovering this passion during Trump's rise to power, as so many of us were, and I think that marked a lot of us, but it really profoundly influenced my understanding of politics and representation. And it was very disheartening and frustrating for me to watch that unravel as it did, uh, because it sort of created this question in the back of my mind and made me wonder, like, if a qualified woman had never held the highest office in our nation before, like, when would that time be? And I literally remember my teacher said to me, because I was very visibly upset the day after the election, while a lot of my classmates were, like, cheering, and he was saying, like, if it if it wasn't her, I don't I don't know when our nation will be ready. And that was something that really stuck with me. And I've sort of continued to work on gender issues since then in a variety of ways. But a few years later, I got the opportunity through the Washington program with Notre Dame to intern at the State Department in the Office of Global Women's Issues, which was just like the most magical experience for me. And in this office, there's a lot of focus on women's political representation. It's a very prominent project because it affects so many development factors. Like when we have women's political representation, we see there's better emphasis towards climate justice. There's more priority towards family health. We see more cooperative conversations and like there's higher inclination to peace. And there are a lot of things like basically just catalyze development in a lot of different ways. But as we're looking at global policy and programs to sort of push this, there are places like Papua New Guinea where there are literally zero women holding elected office. And so what that really brought up for me is why is that? And also, how do we change that? So as I was there doing research on policy, like through that lens, I stumbled across a paper that ultimately sort of set me up for my own research. Um, it's called Girls Just Want to Not Run, and it's um, through American University. And foundationally, what this paper sort of pushes is that it's not that women aren't winning their elections. It's that women just aren't running in general. There's an ambition gap by gender. And there was this stat that really struck me. And it was that if a child has been socialized about politics and like ever encouraged to run for office or just like spoken to about it, by the time they're in college, they're 47% likely to answer that it's something that they would consider that they would run for office. But if they've never been socialized as a child, then they're only 3% likely to say that they would do that, which is a huge disparity. Um, and also we socialize men at much higher rates than women. And so understanding that getting kids at a young age, especially young girls and talking to them about that and sort of like changing those conceptions like while they're fresh and before that gender ambition gap is really cemented is really important. And I realized in our congressional earmarks for women's programs, there needs to be a lot more salient language about starting young in leadership and sort of creating that pipeline and addressing the root of the issue because it starts really young. And now if we look at like how socialization takes place, it happens through a variety of channels. Socialization is a really broad word, um, like academics like to use it, but it's kind of like, what does that mean? And it literally can be like someone just telling you to run for office. It can be learning about government. It could be someone asking you if you would ever run for office when you're young. So then at this point, I connected with Christina Wolbrecht, and she was doing a lot of work on the role model effect, which is a form of socialization. And this is especially intriguing to me, just like as a woman of color and 
as we were on the tail end of the 2018 midterm elections where we saw women of color elected and huge momentum like for the women's movement and women of color elected in record numbers. I was just sort of thinking about like, especially after knowing how much 2016 impacted me, like how 2018 would be affecting like all the young girls who are watching. A lot of research tells us that role models, um, especially like role models with descriptive representation, like where we have shared identity factors, increase our sense of political like self-efficacy and they also decrease something that's rampant in a lot of young girls, which is like election aversion. And so it's not that women don't want to lead. It's that they don't want to have to run for office, like get to that position. And there's a lot of evidence um, that seeing representatives similar to you makes you feel as if one, the government is more responsive to your interests. So like you're more inclined to interact with the institution. It also encourages young girls to engage in political conversations. And there's also a lot of studies about like at points in American history when women had high levels of political visibility, there were spikes in anticipated participation. And even when those candidates lose, like in 2016, sort of a subsequent widespread increase in pessimism from women might still compel an increase in running um, just because you kind of get fired up. So ultimately what I decided to do was a survey experiment. And through that, I worked with a survey um, contracting company, and I was able to survey 800 adolescents in America. And the treatment was essentially we provided a picture of a candidate. And in an ideal world, I think we would have been able to like be a lot more inclusive of race and gender, but just because of sample sizes and like trying to find statistically significant results, um, we ultimately provided a picture of a white man, a white woman, um, a Latino man, and a Latino woman, and then would provide their names. And these were all real candidates um, who have just been recently elected. And so it was like a short two-sentence passage and a picture. And then we followed up with a lot of questions. One, in terms of like anticipated political engagement and then also like political efficacy. So would you volunteer? Would you write a letter to your congressman? Would you run for office? And then questions like, do you think you'd be good at it? And so the results from that were very interesting. They did ultimately prove the baseline that women were actually more likely to vote or to say that they would vote or volunteer, but they were significantly less likely to say that they would run for office. Although in terms of efficacy, they all were the same, except in one of the factors, women thought they would be better. So that really does reinforce this issue of like women think they're equally equipped, but they, for some reason, don't want to do the running for office, although they do want to get involved and be engaged in other ways that are a little bit less involved, a little more passive, whatever that reason be. However, it was not exactly what I had hypothesized in terms of the treatment because actually we just didn't see a lot of effects in general with the passage in the picture, which I think shows not that the role model effect doesn't work, but that it actually has to be more, like, more explicit and in stronger ways than just like two sentences in a picture, which I honestly think is a very important finding to show that we have to be very deliberate and intentional about this kind of socialization and that it can't just be something super passive because that baseline does still exist so there's a lot of importance sort of to work to close that gap. But that's basically the summary of it. But I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. That sounds awesome. Um, thanks for sharing with us. 
What implication do you think these findings have in the real world and how can we begin to address this gap? Yeah, I think ideally for me, what this would be uh, able to translate into is something that could be used as a tool like in education, because I think that's our biggest point of entry in order to rectify this disparity of like ambition and like really look at this gap. I actually, well, I was hoping to do this project like in tandem with my thesis and then because of COVID, it sort of got cut short. But um, last spring semester, I was working with a Southwind Elementary School and like created an after school program called Girls in Government at Darden Elementary um, and worked with fourth and fifth grade girls and sort of just talked to them about leadership and like what exactly government is, talked to them about, we like we wrote letters to representatives and just talked about their own abilities. And it was kind of both a journey to get them to harness and uncover their own power, but also to learn more about like systems and institutions that are at play in the larger picture. And that was awesome because they really didn't have any idea about the government, or like what was going on, which is fair because they're like 10. But a lot of the sessions that we had, and I, I wish we could have done more, um, I really saw like firsthand the value of speaking to them and like very straight language about like leadership and their own ability to be a leader and like why it's important to hold confidence in that and name your own abilities. And I think that was really transformational just for their understanding of self and for their ambitions for what they wanted to do in the future. And we, it was a lot like less polarized and partisan and it was more like how community service oriented and stuff. But I think ideally, like if we, we could really find the antidote, then that's something that should be like very much high priority into including into education policy. And that's something I would be really interested in pursuing later. That sounds awesome. Did you incorporate any of this into your time as student body president? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I just think it's really important, especially I have very much benefited from having strong women leaders and mentors in my life. So I think the value of mentorship and the importance of encouragement is vital to getting women um, to step up into leadership positions. We created a presidential initiative called the Women's Leadership Forum, which was very high priority for us because especially at a place like Notre Dame that was built for men, I think it's really important to continue to make space for women on this campus. Um, and so the Women's Leadership Forum, we just connected a lot of the um, women identifying leaders of the student union and brought in high women at the university. Ideally, that's something that could be expanded, but COVID policy, we stuck to university leaders this year. But it was a great opportunity because, one, it provided us exposure to a lot of amazing um, female role models who had gone through intense leadership journeys and you know, deal with things like imposter syndrome and family work balance. So hearing from them and just getting the chance to like learn about their lived experiences was really powerful, but it was also powerful to be able to connect a lot of women together so that you kind of have solidarity in your leadership experiences. I personally like was really close with the student body president my freshman year um, who was a woman and she's always been really encouraging of me and she was one of the people who like was a mentor and gave me a lot of advice and ultimately was like I think you should go for a run as well as my immediate predecessor Elizabeth Boyle who was another person who was huge in encouragement and was like I think you should do this and it really makes a world of a difference to have people sort of in your corner saying like 
this is something you should go for. And that's why I think it's something that like women need to latch on to and use a lot more. The work your your team has done this year has been absolutely incredible. And we thank you for all that it's meant to our campus. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask is you mentioned it, uh, how important representation is. And I was just curious, did you have any anyone in politics that served as your role model and helped you find your identity in politics? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that, so I'm half Filipino. There actually has never been a Filipino woman in Congress. So I think for a lot of people who are like of mixed race or multicultural, it's not necessarily that you have someone like exactly who matches you. But that's also part of what I wanted to see in my project because for me, I think about somebody like, I mean, this is so classic, but like you think about someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and like what's super cool about her is that like she's multiracial. She's a young woman. Like she's very powerful. I don't know if you guys have seen her Vogue interview where she like walks through her beauty routine and like simultaneously tears down the patriarchy. But I watch it like once a week. It's like my <laughs> comfort video. Um, but so I just think it's really cool. She's brought a lot of interesting thematic tones to Congress. And I just love the way that she's so like bold and unapologetically herself and also stands up for what she believes in. And it's not necessarily that like I'm totally in a line with all of her beliefs, but it's just that like it's really cool to see a young woman of color taking that on. And really just like standing up to the system. And I think that's what we need more of. She is sort of the quintessential role model for like young girls of color. But what would be really exciting is if we had an abundance of those. And I think we're starting to see that progress be made. But like for me, the first woman I saw run for president was Hillary Clinton. And I think that's why that was so impactful for me, like seeing her loss, because I, I'd never seen that before. And so ideally we would live in a world where it wouldn't be like, oh, you have one to choose from. It, it would be just an abundance of people who you can just turn on the news and automatically see someone who inspires you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It shouldn't be a rarity that someone yeah. under 30 <laughs> is also a woman is running for Congress. So the next question I had for you, I asked Coach McGraw the same question. And I wanted to ask you because y'all share a passion for women's issues and strong leadership abilities and your impact on our campus. So if you could say anything to your younger self or any young girl out there right now, what advice would you give them? I even look back to myself a few years ago and think that this is advice that I could have used. But at least at Notre Dame, this is how I felt. It's that any endeavor you embark upon, you're never doing it alone. And I think what's so daunting about running for office, and I've only done it at like a very small microcosmic level of Notre Dame, but it's vulnerable and it's really scary. And the idea of failure like can be so crippling at times, but it's so much more daunting when you feel like you're shouldering it all on your own. But ultimately, like as you go through wherever you are, like whatever setting you're in and you're like really steeped in that ecosystem and you're making relations. And if you're doing things how you should be doing them, like you'll end up with a lot of people who want to support you, who are like in your corner. And it's not ever something that it's just like you, your standalone mission. It shouldn't be like you on your own, your standalone mission. Um, like if you're going to be serving the public, ideally that's something you have been doing and have been making your goal and like running for office is just the next step to do that and so realizing that like you can do it 
in community, I think for me and it's like for a lot of young women is something that is encouraging. And like when I'm talking with younger girls on this campus who think about their aspirations in a few years, that's always something that I try to emphasize. Like you're not doing it alone. You shouldn't be doing it alone. And when you're doing it as like part of a team that does help like ease the concerns of like widespread embarrassment or feelings of failure. Cause you realize like you have an entire team of supporters with you who believes in the same things and is walking in tandem with you. And that's, I think very encouraging and another piece of the puzzle that needs to be added. Like when we talk about running for office and pursuing representative positions. Yeah. Um, so a little birdie told me that you're going to be in D.C. next year. <laughs> and I was wondering how this work is going to play into your future career. Definitely. So I'm very excited. Working at the State Department, like I said, was so formative to me because I had always sort of been like flirting with a lot of theories about like gender equity and how it affects things on page in classes. But actually getting to see it made flesh like at an eye level was so life-changing for me and it helped me uncover that this is ideally just like a passion project that I'd get to work on for life and so I'm very excited to have accepted a position um, with an organization called Vital Voices and ultimately what they do is very similar to the work that I've been doing and they're sort of like a women's leadership capacity building place where they identify women leaders around the globe who are working on issues in their local communities one because they're like they have the best perspective and lived experiences to do so but also because knowing that they have a lot of potential and like investing in them can reap a lot of benefits and so what we do is kind of provide technical training to them whether it's like entrepreneurial or just like personal empowerment type of things um, through a lot of different programs and then also sort of create a network that connects them and I will be specifically working in their um, department that is leadership and global activation. So it's kind of like their youth program. So it's very focused on mentorship, which I so strongly believe in, like I've told you. So I'm very excited um, to feel like I found something very much in alignment with what I've been wanting to do. Um, And also really full circle moment, Hillary Clinton is one of their honorary chairs. So Um, And they're funded by the State Department's Office of Global Women's Issues. So lots of different ties to things that have been foundational to me. And I'm very excited to continue that work. And I think a lot that I've learned in terms of the power of mentorship and really just understanding how important it is to show like young girls their voices and, and work on those leadership skills will be at play. And so I'm thrilled to probably be moving to DC in around September. I'll be remote for a little bit, but it's kind of the next chapter, which is crazy, but I'm welcoming it. Yay. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your research with us and your thesis. Um, Super excited about all the work you're doing and will continue to do. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a great time. Next, we are bringing on senior class president Sam Canova to present his thesis in the program of liberal studies on the roles of hip hop culture in post apartheid Cape Town social discourse. Sam is a senior PLS major who lived in Siegfried and now lives off campus. Welcome to Pizza Pod and Politics, Sam. Hey, guys. Super excited to be here. Awesome. Let's get started. Tell us about hip hop culture in Cape Town. I'd love to. 
So I, I first encountered like the whole topic. Um, I think it was like my freshman year around the end. I was writing a paper for an American studies course and came across this really um, intriguing footnote that there was a proliferation of like, graffiti and breakdancing and, and, and other like artifacts of hip hop culture in the swell of apartheid from the early to late uh, 1980s. Um, so having been a fan of American hip hop and, and, and fairly aware of its, its role as like uh, a conscious or, or protest um, art form, that sort of drew me in to, to get to know it a little bit better. So I applied to, to study it with a professor that, that works a lot in the African diaspora through the Calig International Scholars Program, um, and then got closer to the topic that way. Now, eventually, over the years, I, I sort of just listened more and more, um, as much as I could find on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and, and platforms like that. But fortunately, through, through the Kellogg Institute, I was able to secure a, a grant for the summer after my sophomore year and actually got to travel to Cape Town for about four weeks right before coming into my junior year. And there, it was very exploratory. Didn't quite know what I was doing, but, but I sort of like picked it up as, as I went around, um, really just walking through the city and, and gradually bubbling up a, a social network to get to know artists, activists, and creatives, both in the city and in the townships, um, that all like have, have something to say um, and, and share and create through, through, through hip-hop culture there. Um, and then afterwards, sort of spent a, about a year parsing out some of the storylines, um, which eventually took shape in, in this thesis, um, sort of in, in a new journalist style. Some narrative, some history, some, some economic and media analysis. Yeah, and at the end, re really glad I got to do it under the advising of uh, Professor Ernest Morell. And happy I could do it alongside my PLS classmates as well. That's super cool. Is this kind of a rare topic, would you say, for PLS theses? I feel like they're kind of all over the map. They are super all over the map. I've heard that one student for next year is creating a new font based on John Keats' poetry. So there's lots of cool things to do. Gotcha. So you decided on this project specifically after your time in Cape Town? Yes. So I, I applied to the Kellogg ISP and applied for this grant funding, sort of thinking like, oh, there's a chance it can like roll roll into a thesis at the at the end of my time at Notre Dame, but really didn't know how it would take shape until I was probably about like two weeks in into my time in South Africa. Um, I was on a phone call with my advisor and sort of just telling him some storylines, sort of also talking out some of the anxiety of how I didn't feel as though I was coming home with quite as enough like as robust of a data set as as I felt that I should. But 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 that's when he introduced like, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be an academic paper as much as a collection of stories and a somewhat but not always linear account just to give a, a picture of the scene. Awesome. So could you share some of the narratives with us? I'd love to. So I think the overarching notion that I try to present is, is that hip hop, when it came to South Africa in the late 80s, began to play a role that both served as um, a manifestation of and, and an amplifier for anti-apartheid protests. And, and now... Though the country's instituted democracy, though we're now 20 or 30 years after the first democratic elections, we're still seeing lots of those like insidious injustices um, reflecting and, and rearing their heads in, in really interesting ways. Lots of people might tie that to how um, the, the revolution sort of only established a, a more broad democracy, but did not change the neoliberal economics. So more or less money and land stayed in, in, in the hands of the powerful and wealthy, which were um, the, the minority um, white folks there. So now you're seeing things like um, where in the 50s, folks might have been pushed off of their land by the military during the apartheid era for the Group Areas Act. Now the same thing's happening, but, but, but at the hands of money. So gentrification is, is sort of moving in and pushing families out. For example, um, I actually happened to get the chance to go through a photo shoot with one um, rapper who was um, in an area called Bukop. 
I had no idea what I was walking into, but but when he was sort of going through between shots, he, he chatted with me a little bit more. Turns out his his grandmother actually used to live in Bukop, but in 1954 she was forced out of her home by the military, pushed out into the townships, which which we might call um, ghettos or slums, um, several miles outside of the city. So we're seeing through ways like that, whether it's photoshops or shooting music videos there, things like that. Uh, you'll sort of see hip hop now as a, playing a role of, of protest and, and, and in another way, cultural reclamation of, uh, of land, of, of local tongues, of, of original cultures. Super cool. Did you see a lot of art forms like graffiti kind of reiterating this message as well? Yeah, yeah. There, there's one really cool script in, in the same neighborhood. I happened to just be going through like a long walk, sort of went from the downtown up the hill into this neighborhood, Bukop. Um, and then just before I went on my way to a, like a much wealthier and a bit more gentrified area, um, I, I came across in, in, in some like government housing, like a huge graffiti script of the neighborhood's name, which, which is just like a fascinating case. You'll typically see like graffiti popping up like that um, in, in lower income areas. So that was one really neat manifestation. You, you'll also see it like much less in the suburbs and much more in, in the townships. I got the chance to go into another township called Kailicha. And, and there, there were many, many creatives, people that will sort of like rap and, and produce a song really off of, off of a phone or, or share it just by sharing it on Bluetooth or off of uh, USB, like flash drive sticks, things like that. That's really interesting. Anyone we should listen to? Oh, yes. Um, I really like this one guy named Uno July and, and another named Youngsta CPT. Uh, and one particularly cool part of the project was that we're, we're sort of working with like a living archive and a, and a country that still remembers its own revolution. Um, so in that vein, we, we, we started to open up like a, a U.S. To, to South African dialogue. Um, so it's a little bit less like just um, going in, collecting information and, and coming back, but, but something the other way as well. Uh, a few weeks ago, I got to host a Zoom lecture with Uno July um, at the Kellogg Institute. That's so cool. What yeah. was the lecture on? Same thing. Yeah, so it was sort of half his story, like coming up, which is really a fascinating story. Born in like the early 80s, his dad was exiled as like part of the uh, the, the ANC or the, the, the militant wing of, of, of the Revolution Party. And then also exiled after apartheid, largely because of his, his militant actions. So heard lots about Uno's story. And then he sort of like played and then broke down one of his most recent songs for us. That's super cool. That is pretty incredible. Uh, so you mentioned like when you walked into the photo shoot, you were not really knowing what you were going to walk in on and experience. Uh, were there any other memories from Cape Town that you never imagined that you would have? Yes, definitely. I think one, one of, <laughs> I think like over the course of the month, I, I was just became more and more surprised at, at how much can happen just by like starting up a conversation. Uh, for example, I, my, one of my first points of contact was at um, just a local museum. I asked to see the sound archivist there and shared a bit with myself and the project. Then he turns to his Facebook page, um, pulls up like someone else, and they say that I should go to this like hip-hop karaoke night. And it, it sounds kind of corny, but like I didn't have much else to do. Um, so I went it's on this rooftop bar in downtown Cape Town, and, and like gradually I just realized everyone there is like a hip-hop head to some degree, whether they're like sneakerheads or fashion designers or spoken word poets or producers or rappers. And so there I just got like swaths and swaths of contacts pretty much just by, by walking in blind. Um, and it was actually there that I met someone that introduced me to, to Uno. That's super cool. Do you keep in touch with anyone you met in Game Town still? Um, yes, I've exchanged like a few texts and WhatsApp messages and things like that. Um, yeah, it, it was sort of fun to converse, especially last summer after um, like, like um, um, the middle of the revival of the BLM protests. 
Um, waves were actually like reaching Cape Town and South Africa, um, such that people were asking you like, oh, like, like what's going on over there? Like it looks like everything's burning. Um, but you'd also start to see some manifestations of like messages of solidarity on like rappers' social media posts and things like that. Like like Meek Mill's posts about BLM protests would be reposted by like township rappers and things. Wow, that's awesome. Um, how did you see a comparison between this hip hop culture that you saw in Cape Town and maybe like the protest nature of American hip hop? That is a really great question. I think for the most part, it, it, it's it's pretty familiar. There's there's this word that lots of like hip hop people in hip hop studies use. It's it's localization, and and it's a combination of globalization and and localization. And the idea is that hip hop is is this culture that's was sort of like put together in the Bronx, but but quickly spread across America and then spread globally. But wherever it goes, it's continuously like relocalized. So though it might sound the same in in like the the production styles and and like rap flows and things like that. You'll, you'll, the subject matter itself will, will start to become much more pertinent to um, local issues um, and, and local pride points, too. Not everything is just like conscious protest. And, and I think one of the really where, where it starts to get really fun is when you hear it also in, in the sounds and, and the samples. So, for example, in, in American hip hop, it's, it's fairly common to hear the poet Gil Scott Heron being sampled or, or um, the activist Malcolm X. And, and you'll actually hear snippets of, of that as well in South African hip hop. But also you'll, you'll hear weavings in of um, South African poets or jazz artists um, or Nelson Mandela. You'll hear, you'll hear sound bites in there. So, so yeah, sort of like that globalization trend, um, whether it was just across neighborhoods as hip hop moved throughout the U.S. Um, and then globally it was carried on. And now, um, now as hip hop is like continuing to graduate from one generation to the next, you'll hear it in, in more and more local tongues, with more and more local slangs. So, so now English is something that's like almost commercial and, and almost unnatural. Th- there was one group that, that sort of put it to me this way. They're, they're like an anti-capitalist and anarchist rap group. And, and they do work in, in all, all across like southern countries in Africa. Um, and, and they were telling, talking about this one song. I, I think it was um, on workers' rights in Ethiopian mines. And, and they basically said like for something like this, like how, how can you effectively communicate that in English if, if no one in the mine, no, no one from that area like actually speaks it? You, you just can't really. Gotcha. Um, something that came to mind when you were talking as um, we see more protest nature in hip hop culture, I've also noticed that American rappers have gotten involved um, in civic engagement and voting and voter registration. I know Chance the Rapper had a series of concerts where he would um, march people to the polls or um, have voter registration tables at his concerts um, before uh, like the 2016 and 2020 elections. Um, I was wondering if you saw any sort of similar activism in South African hip hop. Yeah, definitely. Big fan of Chance, too. That's a great question. I, th- I think in South Africa right now, there's still like a, some degree of, of distrust in the government. Um, so, so though democracy has been established so far, the, the ANC, which is the party in power and, and that, that, that won power after the first elections, it's never actually like transitioned out. So some people say South Africa isn't yet a true democracy. Um, so while you might not see as much of, of, of like voter activism, you will see lots of, of cases of, of hip hop being used towards like community activism. So things like youth programs, using using music to build centers for lots of community engagement, be that through like local entrepreneurship and, and other modes like that. Yeah. So so I think you'll see, though not always like politically involved, um, a, a lot of other ways in which hip hop is being used for like a community purpose. 
All right. So all this information that you've gathered and shared with us, how might it connect with, you know, what you might do in the future? Where are you going from here? What's next for you, my friend? A very good question. Um, so for the next couple of years, I, I, I sort of plan to leave academia for a bit um, and, and do um, a consulting job in Chicago. But from there, I, I'd be really fascinated to dive into the international development world. Um, so though I likely w don't, well, for the moment, I don't quite plan on, on pursuing hip hop studies. I do think this experience was very valuable to, to, to sort of understand like what exactly like an, an on the ground look and, and feel of, of a culture as, as a mode of communication and, and solidarity. I like how that, how that can sort of take shape. I, I do think that like my time, even though just it, it, it was brief, um, staying over and, and, and walking to, through and, and meeting folks in the townships of Cape Town was like very personally informative for, for like my own development and discernment towards the future as well. Sam's being modest. He's working at McKinsey next year. So congratulations. congratulations. And thank you for joining us on Pizza Pod and Politics. This was awesome. Yeah, I had a blast. I hope you guys did too. We always do, my friend. We have Evan Muller and his thesis in the Department of Political Science on political interference on the military justice process in the wake of war crimes. Evan is a senior as well, political science major and Russian minor from Roanoke, Virginia. Welcome, Evan. So I guess I initially got interested in the thesis. Uh, I'm going to become a Marine Corps judge advocate after commissioning and graduating from college. And just got interested in it after President Trump uh, pardoned a series of accused and convicted war criminals. And that sort of like wondering like why that happened, whether there's historical context and previous record of that. So I began looking into historical case studies of war crimes committed by the United States in mostly in counterinsurgencies and just seeing like what sort of political interference happened during these cases and during the military justice process in order to convict those, commit those war crimes. Um, so during that, kind of narrowed it down to four different case studies of My Lai and Son Tong in the Vietnam War, and then the Bagram prisoner abuse and uh, Marine scout snipers desecrating dead Taliban fighters in Afghanistan. So then comparing, I sort of looked at those, so like what type of interference and political interference and mostly defined as whether that's pardons, uh, political statements, cover-ups, all intended to sort of shift public support and public opinion around that war crime. Um, so during that, I kind of cross-checked that against um, like public support for the conflict at the time of the war crime and just seeing like when it was more likely for uh, interference to take place during that war crime. Okay. Uh, can you tell us a little more about what you found and uh, just really go into detail as much as you can or as much as you want about your thesis? Okay. Uh, well, so I basically found that political interference was more likely uh, when public support for a conflict was low. There's this phenomenon of, especially during counterinsurgencies, of basically the conflict can only, only continue if public support for, for the conflict remains pretty high. And after a war crime especially, the uh, public support can take a dip. So um, a lot of policymakers will become afraid that it'll sort of dip below that critical threshold necessary uh, to maintain the conflict. So they'll try and take measures, whether that's trying to cover up the war crime or kind of shift the narrative around the war crime uh, in order to minimize the impact on uh, public opinion and support. Well, cool. and can you tell us a little bit about those historical case studies? I know not everyone might be super familiar with um, each of those events. Um, okay, so Mi Lai, that happened in 1968. So it was post the Tet Offensive, which was this big offensive put on by the North Vietnamese Army in the Viet Cong, um, which already kind of dipped public support because all the generals kept telling the American public we were winning, kind of showed that the North Vietnamese were able to amass that amount of power 
even though it was a big strategic victory for the U.S., I think overall it still like dips public support for the U.S. So I think overall it was probably a victory for the North Vietnamese. So in the context of that, the this army unit was extremely frustrated. They were just taking contact, but not really able to uh, actually fight the enemy. Um, so they got this mission where they were supposed to insert into the My Lai village and take out like the North Vietnamese forces there. When they got there, um, it was just all civilians, but they were they were led by Lieutenant Cali, who basically led them to massacre approximately 500 Vietnamese civilians. And in the wake of that, the army just covered it up, said it was like a normal combat operation. And it wasn't until a bunch of the helicopter pilots who witnessed the massacre um, brought it to Congress, and then Congress kind of pushed an investigation and then combined with some investigative reporting by Seymour Hirsch, kind of exposed the massacre and the cover-up, um, uh, and that really impacted public support for the war and kind of lost faith in the governmental and especially military institutions at the time. Um, and then Sun Tong uh, was committed by a small squad of Marines operating uh, as a patrol. That was about three years after Mi Lai and the, all the fallout from that. And... Uh, they basically, very similar to, in some ways, to Milai, just a um, smaller amount of civilians killed, um, basically went out on a patrol, massacred a, a village, killed around 13 Vietnamese civilians, and then went back to the base and uh, claimed that was like a successful combat operation. But then this got exposed when um, one of the villagers went to an intelligence officer telling them about this, and they, the Marine Corps didn't want to repeat what the Army had gone through with the massacre um, and the fallout of the cover-up from that. Um, so they immediately like took it to judge advocates and prosecuted the case. So there was less interference in that, um, despite the public support for the conflict being low at the time. I think the context of Mi Lai was important, as there was like multiple quotes that showed like the Marine Corps leadership didn't want um, a repeat of Mi Lai and its reputation on the Army to be reflected on the Marine Corps. And then I guess going to Agram prisoner abuse in Afghanistan, um, there was a series of memos at the beginning of the war on terror by the Bush administration um, sort of legalizing torture essentially basically saying oh these, this isn't torture this is enhanced interrogation techniques um, and they're not pre-detected under the Geneva Convention because they're not really enemy combatants they're uh, terrorists or insurgents and a bunch of this military police unit at Bagram um, would take in all these different prisoners um, basically torture them series of abuse and Two they brought in, uh, they ended up killing uh, through just beating them so bad. It was a pretty heinous case. They got convicted. Um, public support for the conflict at the time was a high, so I found that there was little political interference of any kind, and they kind of fell back onto this framework, legal framework of um, legalizing torture through the Bush memos and saying, like, oh, this doesn't even fall under our previous memos, um, and just went ahead and convicted them. Um, and then the Marine case of desecrating Taliban Fighters was uh, later in the conflict during the period known as the surge where um, under President Obama, they surged in troops um, to the area um, in an attempt to like stop the uh, insurgency at the time. So they, it was at the end of a um, scout sniper operation. They just desecrated these Taliban bodies on camera, and then they were initially just going to be non-judicially punished, um, which is a, a lower form um, of punishment in the military justice system, but then the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Amos, basically changed the changed the jurisdiction of the case from Central Command, and then the Central Command commander was originally just going to 
put like these this lesser punishment on them, but he wanted to elevate the punishment to a uh, general court martial, which is the highest um, level of military court that you can go to. So you just fired the convening authority, put a new convening authority in, um, which was probably a pretty is a pretty grievous um, example of political interference because he just uses command to basically shift how he wanted the court to go. But rather than rather than covering up the case, he basically kind of overpunished it for what a lot of the commanders saw fit at the time because there's like a lot of political pressure, especially via the government of Afghanistan, because there's already a lot of contention around the uh, the surge strategy. So he wanted to ensure that um, like the U.S. was viewed as kind of the good guys and upholding the rule of law in the region. Those are super interesting. I was wondering how does this political interference in the military justice system usually occur um, and like what through what like mechanisms? Okay. Um, so there's military justice systems unique in that um, commanders are like the convening authority in that justice system. So like all the cases are basically approved by them to go to the trial. Um, so sort of the most common would be unlawful command in, uh, interference via statements or kind of like interfering with who gets picked on the jury, whether the case even goes to trial in the first place. Um, so a lot of what will happen, it will be at like that first stage of whether the commander brings it to trial or not and whether it's covered up by the command. Um, given that the military has like full jurisdiction over that. Other other examples would be like by civilian politicians, like I mentioned in the case of President Trump pardoning a bunch of uh, accused and convicted war criminals that can be through pardons or political statements. Um, or it was in the case of uh, Bo Bergdahl, this wasn't included in my thesis, um, where John McCain at the time basically threatened like a full investigation uh, into the case if Bo Bergdahl wasn't prosecuted. And Bo Bergdahl was the... Um, uh, U.S. Army soldier who basically walked off his post and deserted um, and then never brought to trial. Given that uh, you mentioned how President Bush and his administration said uh, the Gene- Geneva Convention doesn't apply uh, to these people because they're not enemy combatants, they're not from any particular state, how important do you think it is to find a way to ensure uh, human rights for all individuals given that uh, any particular leader can uh, look for a loophole in human rights to fit their political needs. I guess just reiterating how important it is that human rights are observed on the battlefield, especially during counterinsurgency operations, a lot of this like gray area uh, combat that we see these days where civilians are kind of mixed into the insurgent population. I think that distinction is especially important in ensuring that they know we're there to like further further human rights and not be infringing our own like political agenda on them through using a lot of the same methods that the insurgent force would be using. Because I think um, you kind of lose your moral high ground by committing these war crimes and not only just committing them, but covering them up. Absolutely. I was wondering how your experience in ROTC at Notre Dame informed like your choosing or maybe interest in this subject matter. Right. So I guess I'll, I'll start off by um, just giving a quick disclaimer that um, my own opinion, this is a lot of this is my, all of this is in my own opinion, not the opinion of the Department of Defense or the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, but I guess especially just given that we're going to be in the, me and my classmates are going to be out in the operating force within the next uh, few years. Just knowing that you can't always like pick who or where you're going to fight, but like you can choose how you fight. And ensuring that your command and then those under your command are following the law of armed conflict and Geneva Convention. Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be doing next year as a Marine Corps judge advocate and what that means? Right. So I'll be um, I'll be actually be in law school. So I'll be like a student judge advocate rather than a full judge advocate. But uh, 
So basically, as a judge advocate after graduating law school, I'll uh, head to the basic school, which is the, the Marine Corps. It's basically an infantry school for about six months because every, every Marine, regardless of uh, what job you are, whether you're a lawyer, intelligence officer, uh, infantry officer, everybody's trained to re- lead rifle platoons. That's sort of what sets the Marine Corps apart. But after that, I'll probably go to like a trial shop. So there'll be more criminal law, whether that's um, DUIs or other criminal stuff um, like theft, uh, assault, anything like that um, would basically be my first tour as a judge advocate. And then whether that's prosecuting or defending. And then probably after that would delve more into like operational law, like a lot of the stuff in my thesis of advising commanders on rules of engagement, shaping those rules of engagement and teaching the uh, teaching the forces out in the field of um, basically how to fight. So cool. Yeah. We've and got two future lawyers on the podcast <laughs> with us today. Yeah. Uh, and congratulations are in order for Evan. Uh, he is actually the first ever Marine Corps selection to come straight out of our undergrad ROTC and go to law school and to become a judge advocate. So congratulations on that, Evan. Thank you. Uh, and in light of this great achievement, do you feel a heightened sense of duty to find new means of providing justice within the military justice system? I definitely think so. I think uh, having the benefit of like a Notre Dame education combined with all the great people I've met here um, definitely gives me a greater perspective and greater sense of, of duty to make sure that r- rule of law um, goes in force, whether that's in the courtroom or on the battlefield. So um, definitely, I think so. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us, Evan. Thanks. Indy Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Indy Student Media for their support in the production of this podcast. We would also like to thank our wonderful guests, Evan, Rachel, and Sam, for being here today. As always, Indy Votes reminds you to register to vote and request your absentee ballot using the link on our website and or in our Instagram bio. Also, check out our other voter education resources on our website. Your vote matters. Get political.